0: and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to The Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast.
1: Hey guys, episode 46 of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Today we're on the phone with Senator Rick Ward out of Point Coupé Parish. And Locke and I are talking to him about the state of hunting and the state of uh, WMAs and hunter participation uh, in Louisiana, and also a lot of his background in hunting and things like that. So we're very excited to have you on, Rick. Thanks for joining us tonight.
2: Oh, thank y'all for having
1: me. Locke, how are you doing, man?
2: I'm good. I'm starting to come out from under the uh, the doom and gloom of the season being over and looking forward to spring a little bit now. and not quite as miserable as I was
1: last week. Well, that's because your best days are ahead of you. Turkey season yes. is around the corner.
2: This is right. Deer it's season is starting to get there.
1: Yeah, deer season is just a thing you do in between turkey seasons.
0: <laughs> Something like that's, that. that. That's hard to argue with.
1: <laughs> yeah. do, do you do any turkey hunting, Rick?
0: I do. It, it's it's kind of hard to uh, hard to decide if if that might not be my favorite. But yeah, no, I do quite a bit of turkey hunting
1: very cool. It. Well, I've I've never gotten into it. I've I, I've been twice. I totally can see the addiction. Um, but I haven't been successful. So, it's kind of like I don't even know if I want to if I want to be successful cuz the last thing I need is a, another expensive hobby. So, um, but uh anyway, I know that uh y'all's best time of the year is coming up in about 30 days or so. But um That's I guess right. that, well, before we get kicked off, um, let's give a, a big shout out to this week's sponsor, Gator Coolers. If you haven't checked them out, they've got a lot of cool things going on as far as customization from the Gator Cooler Custom Shop. We're talking about Gator Camp Cups um, that are customized laser engraved as well as really cool foam Sea deck laser engraved pads for the top of their coolers. A great way to capture memory or to show off your company logo or any anything else that you want on top of there? fully customizable. So check all of that out at gatorcoolers.com it's That's G a T R coolers.com. So, um, well, Rick, again, thanks for joining us tonight. I'm super interested in, in learning about your, uh, hunting career as we call it. Uh, how long have yeah. you been a bow hunter?
0: Well, <clears throat> so i I guess I, I killed the first deer. I started bow hunting when I was probably 12 or 13 and, uh, killed, killed my first deer with a bow probably about whenever I was 15 or so. And, uh, just kind of, kind of gone and grown from there. Um, once, uh, once I started, it was really, really hard for me to set the bow down. Even, even whenever it was rifle season, I just kind of always enjoyed having the bow in my hand.
1: Absolutely. Do you do any rifle hunting now?
0: I do. And, uh, you know even more so with with the kids coming along i've i've spent uh, a little more time uh, the last few years with the with the rifle in my hand but uh, if i'm by myself chances are it'll be with the with the bow
1: now now what part of the state are you bow hunting, hunting in uh,
0: most of the hunting i do is is in uh, the morganza spillway um, and i do quite a bit along the uh, Mississippi river,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not far, uh, not far outside of Baton Rouge, but, uh, those are most of the most probably where I do 90% of the hunting. I make a trip or two out of state, uh, but not nearly as much time as I would love to. Um, in November, I'll, I'll go up to Illinois and, and do some hunting up there. Uh, that's, that's been fun the last, I guess, seven or eight years
1: now. So did you go up to Illinois this year?
0: I did a a very short trip in comparison to normal, but, uh, had a good hunt. I had, I guess maybe three days of hunting, uh, as, as compared to normal, which normally I spend seven or eight days and, uh, saw some good deer, uh, you know, let, let a couple of decent deer go, but, uh, they probably shouldn't have, but I I was looking at at some (laughs) bigger deer. Yeah, you know how that goes. You're you're watching some bigger deer on the other side of the field, and maybe you let one one go that you regret letting go later.
1: Yep. Now, were were you in Illinois during that big uh, snowstorm that they had? So I
0: got there. Uh, I want to say I got there like a day or two after. There was still a lot of snow on the ground when I got there.
1: Okay, so so lo- let me ask you this, because I, cause I and a lot of other people I know, like legitimately 15 other people that are bow hunters in Louisiana were there for that blizzard. And I think it uh-huh. was just more apparent because everybody was posting about it because it's just so <laughs> so drastically different from what we're used to. Um, yeah. But um, when we were leaving to head back South. And I don't remember the dates off the top of my head. Um, it was still snowing it hadn't stopped yet. I heard that the next two to five days was when it, it kicked in gear. So when you were there, where did you, how did you feel like you timed the rut up in Illinois this year?
0: Yeah. So the day, the day that I got there, um, actually the first morning I hunted, uh, I saw, I bet I saw 10 or 12 bucks and uh, I guess for the next two days, the hunting was unbelievable. And then um, I don't know if it was because everything had been kind of laid up with all the snow Mm -hmm. and everything that had happened or what, but it just kind of busted loose. And, And I met some friends that were already up there and had been for quite a few days and, uh, it had been a little slow, yeah. but whenever my, my first morning hunt and on into the next two days, it was pretty unbelievable. And then by my third day, which I only hunted three days, my third day, it started to slow down a little bit. Uh, and, but I would say the, those first two days after I got there, it was, it was on pretty good.
1: Well, it sounds like you timed it perfectly. Cause we, we drove out of there saying, man. I wish we had another two or three days. Yeah. Um, like and, that,
0: and that's, that's about what, what it was.
1: Yeah. That's, and I look, we were around Effingham, um, which is a little more South central. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a, like on the state line or anything. It's a little more central, closer to the central part of the state. But um, that I, you know, like I said, I can't remember the dates exactly. Everything was so easy to um, kind of timeline with that snowstorm. Cause it was, you know, it was a, flashbulb event where you you remember everything circulates around that so i don't remember the dates but it sounded like if you got there right after it stopped and there was still snow on the ground you were right at like we we made it pass pass each other up on 55 headed south you know absolutely so um but that's uh so you didn't kill anything in, in illinois this year or you did i
0: i didn't no but had a great time uh wish i could have stayed longer but You know, some years, every year's different. Had uh, had obligations I had to get back to. So
1: now, how's how's your season been in Louisiana?
0: uh, It was it was a little bit slower. You know, uh, I don't know if it's the we've seen plenty deer, um, but you know, just the I don't know if it's lack of cold weather or what. Just hadn't seen the big ones. Um, And then, of course, one of one of the places I hunt quite a bit is. some bachelor property on the mississippi river mm-hmm. and the last few years you know we've dealt with tremendous high water and so that's that's put a hurting us hurting on us pretty good sure. but uh, uh all in all it was a fun year uh saw plenty of deer um and you know looking forward to next uh, let a lot of young deer go so that's always a that's always a positive and you know, hope for the best with those next year.
1: Absolutely. Um, now, as far as letting deer go, like you said, um, I, that's something that um, that I, I I've I've almost stopped uh, crediting towards a good season. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, we we rank our seasons on or rank our success often on how many we killed or, or Mm -hmm. how full our freezer is and blah, blah, blah. And I think, I think a good metric would be, and I wish, I wish I was, I wish I was like Warren Womack in the, in the, the, the way that I, I enjoyed record keeping as much as he and other people like that do. Um, I've got a a good buddy of mine, Tom Fitzmaurice. He hunts on my duck lease in the Wrigley's. He, mm-hmm. he knows every duck he's killed all the way back to 2000, 1998, yeah. you know? That's and, right. and, and, you know, when, when he's having a shit season, he's like, oh yeah, the last time it was this bad was, you know, 2003, um, or, or back when we were, it was the point system or something like that. And, exactly. and so I wish I was better at, at, um, literally record keeping my encounters because, I might feel better about my seasons knowing you let seventeen deer walk this year, you know. That's right. Or twelve deer, or you know, you let three bucks that were only three and a half walk, or or whatever. Um, I think that's something worth mentioning. That you know, it's a, another way that we should be um, documenting our success or making mental notes of a successful season is that. You know, as bow hunters. hey, I'll tell
2: you something on on that, Tyler. Yeah. A friend of mine, I'm not gonna say names and give away location, but a friend of mine killed hundred and fifty, well, 149 and a half inch eight point in Area Six uh, a week ago tomorrow, uh-huh. last Tuesday, and he shared the picture. And he's been hunting the deer, but he killed the deer with a doe, and then watched another buck breed the deer's doe as the deer was laying on the ground, dead. Um, and he shared with me that he hunted, uh, last week, a series of days based off of record keeping. So he Mm -hmm. had actually had that deer within 70 yards of him twice in January based on record keeping from the year before Mm -hmm. and killed him on a day he expected to kill him during the extended February based off of records from last year because he keeps records of encounters and rut activity based off pattern. And said that he hunted that day. Said so normally doesn't hunt that extended archery that hard, mm-hmm. but he did because he had a feeling based off of his records that it was a day this deer, just based off their patterns, this deer should be on his feet in the daylight. Killed it.
1: That's wild.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: Huh. And, and uh,
0: look, I, I wish I was much better at keeping records. I, I do keep pretty t- pretty good tabs on pictures from year to year and um you know just kind of kind of as a rule of thumb uh you know kind of track like you said timelines of, of when deer seem to move uh better in different areas at different times of the year different things like that mm-hmm. but uh I, I wish i could get better at record keeping i i know my i've watched my dad for years uh he he's, he's the one who I grew up hunting with, but now he fishes more way more than he hunts. And he keeps, he's kept records logs for years. And a lot of times he'll randomly, well, in my opinion, he randomly went somewhere and caught fish. I'm like, what made you go there? He said, well, I looked back, you know, in 1997, uh, the water, (laughs) The the river stage was this, and the temperature was this, and I went over here and I caught thirty seven sackale or white perch, you know, depending on where you're from. Yep. And uh, and so I decided to go back and,
2: and did the same thing again. <laughs> That's it's cool. the same principle. I wish I could. I wish I could slow. I, I just wish I could slow life down enough to make myself sit down and do it. That's, That's right. my problem is I just don't slow down enough to sit down and actually. do the actual physical task of logging yeah exactly i'm on to that get out of the tree and put my stuff in the truck or put it back up in my my hunting room or whatever and i'm on to the next thing immediately you know just life goes so fast well that's
1: that should be i think that should be something that we that we we push next season especially is um you know, we, like I said, we, we judge our seasons based on our, how much blood we spilled, right? And um, I think it would be good, especially as bow hunters, it's it, an encounter for a bow hunter is much different than an encounter for a rifle hunter. Like, you letting a deer pass means you just decided not to shoot him at 250 yards. You letting a deer pass with a bow means you, you, he, you had him 40 yards and under. Um, And so I think that would be a cool statistic to log every year is, Hey, this year I killed two bucks, I killed two does and I let 17 deer pass walk, you know, within bow range. Um, Because that's the thing, like we've said so many times on the podcast, that's the thing. The only thing that makes us different from most other hunters is, is proximity. It's not the weapon. It's, it's the weapon in, in how we use its effective range. I mean, I can go and sit on a food plot that's 300 yards long with my bow, but I'm not going to say I saw 12 deer when they were at 300 yards, you know, um, and, and, and to that point. Um, good friend of mine went and hunted in Alabama this weekend and his family, he, you know, he's, he just got got his first bow kill on publicly. And so he's stupid hooked right now, like, like fiending for it, for continuing that feeling. And, um, Alabama has a late rut. They go to February 15th and, um they have family property and he, he you know, his dad invited, his dad told him to come out as long as are out there. And they, you know, they said the, the cliche, like, Oh, you'd be an idiot to bring your bow, like blah, blah, blah. You need your gun. And so he went and he, he took, he borrowed my lock on my climbing stand. And he, um, he hunted a spot that nobody's ever hunted on the property before. He said it was 75 yards from the main camp. And, and he said it was, he they scouted for two days and this spot was the best buck sign on the whole property, you know, in thick, pine and all that stuff. Well, you know, his last day on what's today, I can't remember what it was, today's Tuesday, Monday, what day is it? Monday. Monday. He came back on Sunday. On Saturday afternoon, he said he had, or Saturday morning, he said he had five does come by and then a big buck come by right under a stand at five yards. And he was so shaken up. He shot straight down on it and kind of just like <laughs> clipped his rib cage, like didn't really yeah. just like shaved him. And yep. um, and he, guys, he was so, just like we've all been, like uh, the can barely form a sentence, can barely speak a word. He was so shaken up, like just so pumped. And um, he, when they didn't find it and he realized the deer was fine, He said, Man, if I had my rifle, he would have been dead. And I said, I said, if you had your rifle, you never would have hunted right there. You, exactly you never you wouldn't bring a two seventy to a place that you can only shoot twenty yards that's just not that's not how we approach the woods with weapons right is we you go you almost you're hunting the effective distance of your weapon therefore I'm not saying nobody does it but um you know if you've got a fifty yard shot and under you're not going to bring a high powered rifle you might bring a forty four magnum or a you know a a thirty thirty or forty five seventy or something so um Anyway, he was beating himself up, and I was like, look, man, it's part of it. If there's ever – I've had a really uh, uh, un, uh, unfortunate series of events on not finding deer year. I've lost a lot this year, very unprepared. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I told him, I was like, this is part of it. I hate to say it, but if you hunt long enough, you will lose a deer. Um, oh, absolutely. So, um, anyway uh, – You know, have, did you kill anything with your bow this year, Rick?
0: I did. Well, I killed one doe and, uh, and I did not shoot any bucks with my bow this year. Um, but had some great hunts. The, one of the, one of the main deer I was hunting, uh, I had him at about 45 yards, maybe 40 yards one afternoon. I believe, uh, it was December 8th, Mm -hmm. but he was directly behind my, my tree he came out of some cutover directly behind the tree I was sitting in. And they had four does that were coming in uh, or just coming through from the other direction. It was really, it's kind of odd because it's pretty early for us in the spillway, but uh, he, he kind of showed some interest in them and kind of put his nose to the ground and went over in their direction, and pushed them off in the other direction. And uh, I never got a shot. Um, but, you know, it was great hunt. Um, you know, uh, that that whole afternoon was was pretty eventful. saw saw quite a few deer, and but uh, no bucks this year. But look, that's I've kind of gotten to the point now where that it doesn't get to me at all. I mean, I, I know uh, I'm sure we most bow hunters, if once you've done it long enough. I've had this conversation with uh, the hunting club I'm a part of. Primarily, uh, is you know, is rifle hunters, mm-hmm. and and I, I still bow hunt most of the season. And so, you talk to a lot of guys, and they're like, "Man, uh, you've killed some nice deer with the bow." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, because I bow hunt." Mm-hmm. But and and so you you've got to consistently bow hunt kind of back to what you were talking about with your friend. If he'd have never been sitting, if he'd have had his rifle, he would have never even had the opportunity with that deer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I can think back to my younger days when I, I was sitting maybe in, in a, in a spot that I had set up for the bow and you shoot a deer at 30 yards with the rifle. And eventually you're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if I'd have, if I'd have been sitting here with my bow, I'd have killed him
1: with my bow. <laughs> you yep. so done that
2: several times. you just got to Go stick
0: ahead. with it regardless
2: of the outcome.
1: Yeah, Locke's got a couple of stories like that. I've <laughs> done that.
2: Well, I've got a couple of crazy stories, really crazy of how they played out in that scenario. But to your point, I've experienced that same thing where I guess kind of what you're saying, some of some of my evolution to being more... Bow than gun, which I'm you know mostly pretty much exclusively bowed now. But some of that evolution was through those experiences, not just the crazy ones, but even the normal ones, like you said, where I set up a place and I bow hunted and I bow hunted and I bow hunted, and I just got got the itch that you know I just want to kill a buck before the season's over, so I go in there and hunt my spot with a gun and shoot a deer at 25 yards, and I'm just <laughs> so disappointed that I I hunted two thirds of the year with my bow. And if I had just made a few more hunts with my bow, I would, have, I would have realized what I had set out to do the whole year. And, and after doing that a couple of times, I finally, like you said, I just, I finally just kind of that had to beat it through my head of just stick with it. You know, you, you just stick with it. But this rifle didn't, you know, you, taking the rifle didn't didn't change anything. You just got to stick with it. Yep. So
1: Well, you know, on the flip side of that, I've seen a few times, I've seen the buck that I was hunting, my target buck out in the field at 80, 100, 150 yards. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'll come home from the hunt. I won't, you know, I didn't get a shot. at him. He never came in close enough. And I came in from the hunt and like, I consider that to be a, a success. I see my target buck in the daylight. I just, you know, I wasn't where he decided to roam that day. And I'll tell that to somebody, and their first reaction is, if you had a rifle, you could have killed him. Right. And that is quite literally the least, like, the furthest thing from my mind is, man, if I didn't have this stupid bow, he'd be dead. I've literally never even considered that. It's more like, man, maybe I need to set up on that tree tomorrow. You know, maybe uh, how can I get close to it? Do I need to hunt a a ground set? Is he traveling this every day type of thing? Like when I see a deer out of bow range, my mind goes to strategy, not handicap, you know, um, not man, if it should have, could have, would have. So that's, that's an interesting
2: 100%. Yeah.
1: That's an interesting point. I can say
2: 100% that the experiences that you've said right there has led me to being successful with my bow yeah I, i've had the same thing i've had that happen i mean hunting private property where i have more autonomy time and more time um like we've talked about in other episodes having encounters whether they were clear-cut yes you would have killed him with a rifle or not just generally learning something about the animal that you're after makes you more effective if you're committed to continuing to chase him it's a blessing if you walk out of the woods with an encounter of your target animal and he doesn't know you're there. You haven't done something stupid and, you know, boogered him or messed him up. If you, but if you got to encounter him and got to watch him, I mean, just like you were saying, Rick, with your encounter this year, I mean, I'm sure you walked away with that going, now, why was that deer nose and doze on December the 8th? That had to give you an idea, you know, and maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't turn out with you killing him, but it gives you a little bit more of an idea of what he's up to, the deer that you're after. Now, you know a little bit more about what he's doing.
0: Absolutely. and and look, I, I mean, every, every situation's different. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate to, to hunt a place that, uh, now look, there may, be, he, the deer that I'm hunting or many of the deer that I hunt in a lot of cases, uh, they, they may, some other member may end up shooting, shooting him with a rifle, but it, you can't let that take away from your goal. I mean, you just kind of have to set your goals and stick with them. And, uh, like you said, it, it's, it really kind of turns into more about, uh, what, what you learn from each encounter and how you can, how you can change it up moving forward to try and make it work better for the next hunt or maybe even the next season.
1: Absolutely. Well, um, so let's, let's start talking about a little bit about this, the state of, uh, hunters and, and, um, the hunting uh, industry or the sport, if you will, uh, in Louisiana. Um, you know, I, I before we started recording, you said that you were familiar with you know hunter decline across the nation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just just as a, a very quick crash course in this for anybody that isn't aware of this, um, baby boomers make up the largest percentage of um, of hunters. Uh, by far, way more than the majority. It's something like seventy or seventy-five percent of all active hunters are are baby boomers or between Gen X and baby boomers. And um, what's happening is they're aging out. They are um, uh, not physically able to hunt as much, or they have passed away. Um, long story short, they they are um baby boomer boomer hunter participation is declining faster than the next generations can, can pick up the the pace or pick up where they're leaving it off. Um, and that's where the hunter decline is coming from. There's some other factors as well, such as the fact that hunting is a recreational sport. Now it's almost not even an argument that, people hunt for survival these days I, I I think unless there's some lost tribe of Americans out there in West Texas that haven't been discovered, that's still shooting javelina for dinner. I don't think there's a lot of Americans that are only getting their food sources from, from um, the wild. And, uh, and we're also at a point now where if you, if you really count, if you like, it's not, nobody wants to do this because I don't think anybody actually wants to, to know the number. Um, if you calculated up all of your expenses to hunt all year and divided it by pounds of meat, you'd be a hell of a lot better off just going grocery shopping once a year, you know? And and so all of those things combined means less hunter participation. What's interesting though, is that due to social media and due to the rate in which we, um, can see information and spread information, our perception is that everybody's a hunter, because we all have our, um, how can I say this? I don't want to say your your core group of people that you associate with, but that's essentially what it is. If you were a hunter, chances are you probably hang out with other hunters, and if everybody you know hunts, then your assumption is everybody must hunt. Well, there's a whole, there's hundreds of other demographics of people that have never shot a gun in their, in their in their life that don't fall into the national numbers of outdoor recreation and and license sales and, and, um, and in purchasing of, of rifles and bows and equipment and things like that. So in, in aggregate, the country has a serious declining problem of, of hunters, um, or a problem of, of hunters in decline. And I was naive to think that much like Louisiana and the economy, that we were somehow recession proof to this, right? We're, we're, this, this is Louisiana. This is sportsman paradise. How surely we are, you know, offsetting this number. We have an increase. And the reality is, is we're falling just as fast in in some areas faster than the rest of the country. Um, Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with that at all? I know we talked a little bit about numbers before we started recording, but um, tell us a little yeah. bit about you know how you're you're well, familiar you know, with that.
0: I guess just kind of a a basic thing before we get into you know, you were you were talking about how social media you it it really make it would make you like I know I can go to a lot of my social media and I, I would you would think that man it, everybody everybody hunts and fishes, but it's, it's not just with hunting and fishing, but really, um, you know, whether it be any kind of political view or anything like that, it's so interesting because a lot of times you, you end up being, uh, connected with people that have like, like interests or same interests as you or, uh, or things like that. And so, um, you know, you end up with this this feed of information that's just like what you have, and uh, and so it it makes you think that that something is a way that it's really not, sure. and and it's really interesting how it cuts across all things. But anyway, that was kind of a side note. Uh, yeah, so you know. I think where we are with, with hunting numbers and, and declining, there's so many factors that go into it. You've got, uh, you know, right off the bat, of course, you know, so many people are just, if they, maybe they grew up hunting private land, but the cost has gotten so great uh, that they, they've never thought about giving public property a a chance or uh, I know, I know just watching my kids, like when when I grew up, um, all I ever thought about doing when I woke up on a Saturday morning was uh, hunting something or fishing uh, for the most part. You know, I mean, there was sports involved. I played sports and all that. But nowadays, um, there's so many more things to catch people's attention, uh, in particular, kids' attention. Uh, So you have more competing interest than ever um and i know we we talked about the cost factor and then of course then you've got uh you've got the whole other side of things the more political side of things which is uh what people think about it uh as a sport and we don't really have that here in louisiana but maybe on on the national scene more so and um
1: and, you mean and like so you whenever, mean like ad- admonishment or harassment
0: yeah just just all those things combined and so whenever you mix all those things together it, it kind of lends itself to uh to people finding things other things to do and you know just from a financial standpoint i this has probably been uh, probably closer to 15 years ago now it's been quite a while but uh not far from where I hunt currently, uh the they had a big hunting club. It was about 10,000 acres and it had been there for years and years and it was several families that had it together and uh, uh pretty decent sized hunting club but it was you know there's a number of families that had it primarily and the the landowner or the you know the, I guess it was a timber company came in and uh, look, can't blame them for this at all as a business decision, but just kind of discussing the cost of things. Come in and say, All right, we're, we're dividing this in four 2500 acre tracks, and uh, and they essentially got the same amount of money for each 2500 acre section that they were getting previously for the 10,000 acres as a whole mm-hmm. and from that I know quite a few people that were involved in that did just said you know what this is where I hunted for you know 30 years and it's it's not the same anymore so I'm just going home and you know whether it be their grandkids or their kids in some cases I' You know, it's, it's just probably, it's, it's not a way of life, uh, to the same extent as it was for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of factors that, that are playing into it and that's, there's no doubt about it.
1: That's, that's a, it's a good point actually about almost like, like discouraged hunters. You know, you've got...
2: I've experienced the exact same thing in the state of Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, the exact same thing. I grew up hunting on a large lease that was 13,000 acres, I think. In my my sophomore year in college, they, they divided it all up, and they started leasing out, you know, five, four, five, six hundred acre tracks. Made a bunch of small leases, higher money. And, you know... When that happened, there were 20 or 30 people and their families that I grew up hunting with at our camp that that was it for them. They just quit. They just, they just, so to, 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 to Rick's point, they just quit their, their, their kids and everything. They just start doing other stuff because, and I can see that in my kids because I grew up, we went to the camp. Camp life, you know, killing things and hunting was just part of this overall experience. And it's what really developed that that fabric of who we are. And I struggle to provide that for my kids. And they're getting pulled in directions where they don't have the tie. You know, I woke up to, 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 to your point. I woke up on Saturday morning with my backpack ready to go to camp with my dad. That camp life and all those men that acted like my pseudo father when my dad wasn't watching what I was doing. Those people molded me. And we just don't have that
1: anymore. So, so I'm gonna, as much. I'm going to pull a, a Lock Wheeler here and say I'm going to play devil's advocate. This is this is Locke's favorite role. Rick, <laughs> Locke likes to <laughs> Locke likes to take like he'll usually usually Lock doesn't say anything until about forty five minutes in. He soaks up everything. <laughs> he, so, yep. he soaks up everything. And then I'm like, man, I hope it did Locke's battery die? Like, is he still and Where'd then he, he go? And he's like, I'm gonna play devil's advocate. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I just soak it up he, and playing
2: my rebuttal. He's
1: still here. Okay, good, good to hear. So I'm gonna play devil's advocate. All right, and I've said this on the on, on the podcast in the past. I've never been in a hunting club. I have been to enough hunting clubs to know that I and my personality and my outlook of of seniority and and, um, uh, type a alpha male, you know, I speak the loudest, therefore I'm the most dominant. I don't do well in those environments because I am a type B alpha male type B alpha male is a guy that doesn't need to puff out his chest and you don't know you fucked up until you've crossed the line and you're not allowed to go back across the line. That's how I am. And so, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of other things that I don't have any desire to be a part of. And, um, and there's also a lot of hypocrisy in, in camps as well. But, um, so m- when I'm listening to both of y'all talk about families that have been on a property for 10, 20, 30 years, losing it, almost like it's in fact something like this happened I remember reading about this in Mississippi 2 years ago they took like a 20,000 acre block of land and they turned it into I think it's called Phil Bryant um uh, they turned it into a, a WMA and the state right. the state bought it from like you said a timber company who had been leasing it to the same groups of families for 25 years and these people have they cried and cried and cried, woe am I, woe am I, woe am I. I can't help but think the whole time, every single year that I had a great piece of property of that size that I'm able to hunt, how fortunate I am, and to also think this could end tomorrow. That would be the first thing that went through my head is like, Let's milk it while we can. This is great. Make your memories. But if it ends tomorrow, let's pack up and we'll find something somewhere else. So maybe I'm not getting the whole side of the story there. But
2: yeah, I've, I d- I think I feel that way. I definitely I think I feel f- that way now.
1: Yeah, I feel like we how naive were y'all? Not y'all, well, but think, they, they. The
2: point that well, I think the point that's uh, missed there from my, from what I was saying is I'm totally in agreement with you now as an adult yeah but as a naive child it developed a passion in me that won't go away even though you know i don't want to be a part of a big club now or i'm or i would be very skeptical to do it now as an adult because I what I, what you've seen and i've experienced what you've experienced in different settings but as a as a child i didn't see all that i know what's going on but i didn't see it all mm-hmm. and um you know that's where it, it's not so much the politics from the adult perspective it's the it's the culture, the hunting camp culture that developed this hunting passion. in so many of us in our family roots that, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to pass something down that you don't have access to anymore.
1: I don't disagree. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I'm, I'm by no means saying nothing good happened there, right? Nothing good happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally get the nostalgia and, and the, um, you know, the, the, the mist, um, you know, Saturday nights and, and, you know, smearing blood on your friend's face that you brought from your soccer team. The first theory kills, you know, that I get all that. My point is, is from an ownership standpoint or almost like an entitlement standpoint is like, you have to approach every year. Like this could go away or, or almost in some ways, even worse, they could start logging in the middle of the season, you know? Um, So I, I just, when you, I feel like, I, Rick, you you don't know this. I'm a big public land hunter. Yeah, it's it keeps you so um, everything's so straightforward. No safe spots, no baiting. Everybody's hunting the same regulations, and if you want something, beat the other person there, and mm-hmm. it's almost like a free market in that sense, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that might be why I appreciate it. So one of the reasons well, why. You know. And I,
0: I it's, it's funny because I'm a I'm a big public land hunter, turkey hunter wise, turkey hunting wise. I probably kill more turkeys on public land than I have on private land. And uh, it it's interesting because you're exactly right. It 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 changes your perspective, and it it causes you to take a lot less for granted. Um, in terms of, you know, I'm I, I know this. I'm I'm a lot less argumentative at at a hunting club meeting than a lot of people because, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. But one of them being, I, I've I've driven down the road with uh, on on the way to the spot I want to go turkey hunting with trucks lined down the side of it. Mm-hmm. So whenever I get to drive up to a camp uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. And there's, you know, two other people in the whole place, and I know exactly where they are and what they're doing. Um, I, I tend to take that for granted less. Sure, haven't had the other
1: experiences. Hey guys wanted to take a quick second to tell you about this year's Louisiana Bowhunter 3D challenge it's going to be held on March 14th which is a Saturday in Pollock Louisiana, the same place it's always been, which is just a little northeast of Pineville this year we're going to have more vendors on site, more targets, and also higher payouts thousand dollar first place for two classes so it's going to be a really big deal we're going to be giving away almost five thousand dollars in cash it's going to be a fantastic tournament everybody's going to have a great time make sure you mark your calendars for march 14th 2020 in pollock louisiana and we hope to see you there let's um let's let's keep talking a little a little bit about the um the state of of hunters right now in Louisiana and I'll kind of I'll fill you and, and some other people in on some some um statistics from this was a, a data project that I did uh, almost 2 years ago about a year and a half ago um the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries puts out license and um permit information for mm-hmm. every single thing that you can get a permit on or a license for in the state they put this big excel file out and um i mean everything from crabbing licenses crabbing permits to um you know hoop net permits I mean, like i said everything and um I was really curious, like I said, after we, after we all heard a few years ago that, that, um, hunters were in decline and, and just as a quick tangent, the reason why that's such a big deal, NPR actually put out a um, great video on why that matters. And it's interesting. You're probably thinking NPR, it's, you know, it's kind of central left. They're not far left, but central left. Um, mm-hmm. why would they be talking about hunters and defending them? It's just like nonsensical. And, um, the reason why is because all public lands, federal and pro, federal state-owned, are um, the beneficiaries of something called the Pittman-Robinson Act. And I want to say I could be off on the year. It's like 1923 or 1927. Anyway, everything that's manufactured and sold to do with recreational outdoors, hunting, fishing, camping, you name it, is taxed. And that tax is what is divvied up between the states based on how much land that they have, and it's literally the budget for national parks, NWRs, WMAs, and it is the sole major funder of all private um, um, public lands in the country. Right. So um, that NPR video broke it down in a very in a way that even anti-hunters had to be like, "Well, goddamn. <laughs> okay, maybe we should back off these people a little bit." You know, because right. I I like Yellowstone, right? Because I like the Grand Canyon. And if if it's the if it is literally outdoorsmen that are supporting this, well then maybe we should back off. And um but when we when we heard those that that video, we heard it was in decline. I was naive. I was like, "Oh, Louisiana has to be you know recession proof from this." There's no way. So I broke. I spent almost two full days, literally. I was also avoiding my job at the time. Um, two full <laughs> days uh, breaking down a ten year chart of the Louisiana license and permit sales data, and what I found was that. Between 2008 and 2018, everything was pretty flat line between 2008 and 2015. And when I say flat-line, I mean like, you know, uh, negligible increases and decreases. Right. And I'm talking duck hunting. I'm talking um, uh, WMA permits. I'm talking bow hunting sales. I'm talking deer hunting licenses in, in total. talking, you know... If fishing, fishing, salt water, fresh water, everything that you could compare, and say, okay, well, let's let's look for an outlier. There wasn't one between two thousand eight and two thousand fifteen. You could also probably assume that it went back before a little bit before two thousand eight because it's very doubtful that like I happened to stop on the year that things flatlined, right? Um, like two thousand eight. Right. So. <clears throat> What happened was from 2015 to 2018, in certain areas, license sales in total, as well as um, bow hunting air, bow hunting uh, sales as well, bow, bow licenses, we were down in between 12 and 17 percent as a state uh, in participation in WMA permits. We were down something like like 18% in duck hunting permits. Mm -hmm. We were down something like 11%. And I'm not looking at the statistics in front of me. These are just what's kind of burned in my brain from doing this project. And, um, and (coughs) what, what I remember literally being shocked by this, like what's happening, what has happened. Um, and, uh, I, you know, actually I made a joke at the time to my buddy. I was like, well, they took duck dynasty off the air in 2016. That must be why it's declined, you know? Um, and so with, um, bow hunting, you could even, if you wanted to get more granular, you could break it down by parish and you could look at license sales by parish. And in 2016, what happened in East Baton Rouge Parish? Yeah, flood. The flood, both of them, March and August. And, wow. you know, you've got Livingston Parish in there. You've got um, East, Felicia, East Feliciana, West Feliciana, all those. Those particular parishes made up the majority of the deficit of of hunting licenses for those years like if so essentially right. if, if you removed those parishes everything was relatively no- normal it was only down like 3% when you added them back in it would go down over 10% in decline and um i don't want to get too granular here like too too statisticy here but there's also a couple other things too Baton Rouge is the biggest city in the state. Or I don't know. Is it New Orleans? I don't remember which one's bigger. Uh, uh I
0: think – Baton Rouge populations the region anyway if you break it yeah.
1: down by the region there Baton Rouge may have surpassed Greater Baton Rouge area. So, yeah. you know, that's going to you know there's not as many outdoorsmen in New Orleans as there are in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is the state capital, it's also going to be where wildlife and fisheries is. So, there's a couple of other things there as well that might lead to why if when that parish declines it hurts, you know, brings down the whole aggregate. Um but anyway, um that data was really interesting to me because it was right in line with what we were being told was happening in the rest of the country and that is a really good indicator that if it's happening here and it's happening there the only common denominator between all of that are is uh, that i that i can see is the age group of these hunters that's in decline which like i said is the is the baby boomer era or generation if you will um right and so before we started recording i asked if you had kids and lock his kids and i've got some young kids as well um a few things that we can do is obviously get them involved in the outdoors but it's an uphill battle for the reasons you said earlier there's so many things for them to do um these like for children to do these days um, and we, you know, we really owe it to not only our kids, but it's not even just children. I know a lot of adults that have never been hunting ever that are by, by the time they're 28 or 30 or 35, they're almost embarrassed to try and figure it out or to start. Um, right. and, and so, you know, one of my takeaways from that declining data, and I didn't do it for 2019, is we've got to invite people hunting with us. We have got to get our kids involved, which I I know a lot of us do. And that's a slow process. It it takes time. You you can't put a bow in a seven-year-old's hands and expect them to be proficient or have the um, the, uh, attention span or the patience to do it. It takes a lot of time. So like locks, like takes his kids very often and they typically go rifle hunting. And, um, but regardless, like, you know, what's, what's your plans with your kids, both of y'all, what, what like, do you have a, a thought process on introduction or like trying to get them to get into this?
0: Well, you know, I mean, for me, <clears throat> The, it's interesting because the first thing that you you learn when you have multiple kids, not the first thing I guess as they as they start to grow up is how different they all are. Sure. Um, my my ten year old, uh, from the time he was probably three or four years old, he would come deer he could come deer hunting with me and and we could sit in a box stand for an extended period of time. Whereas my and he's still that way. Um, I can we can hunt. I can hunt in just about any situation with him, and he he loves it. He loves sitting there. Um, he but he's just by nature. He's very laid back. He's very patient. Um, he he's all around uh, enjoys it. My eight year old um, he loves going to the woods he loves riding four wheelers he loves being out there but he'll tell you i'm not interested in sitting for any length of time now he's he he killed his first deer uh last year actually he didn't kill one this year but he killed his first deer last year and was super excited to do it but it happened you know i had a situation set up where i knew if we timed it right and got it got there right i you know, it it was going to play out the right way, and uh, his attention span wouldn't have to be real long, and we could make it happen, and all those sorts of things. But you know, my goal with him is completely different. It's more or less just keep him interested in the outdoors, and as he grows a little older, maybe you know he settles in, and and uh, just his kind of in general love for the outdoors leads in them to want to wanna yeah. hunt more and and look he looked like we fished for quite a while yesterday we caught a bunch of fish and he loved that he we did that but it was more action and sure. and so uh you know they're just they're all different and you gotta you gotta figure out what what gets them and what what sparks their interest to keep them keep them going? Because um, you know I, there's so many different things we talked we touched on it earlier, but it's not even now that there's so many more things. But everything, even some of the th- same things we would have been involved in at their age, now the same exact thing is so much more demanding, and so. You know, you find yourself on that Saturday morning where maybe we were spending the day in the woods. There, you know, being pulled to uh, a little league game or a, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And and that's all that's fine. But it's just uh, trying to trying to mesh it all together where you find the the right formula for each one and and how it works for them. It's certainly not a not a one size fits all. Cause I mean, you know, for me, uh, I've watched this happen and I, I certainly have tried to avoid it with mine. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't want to force them into a situation where they, they walk away or they come home saying, well, you know, I, yeah. I went, but uh, you know, I had, I felt like I was in class the whole time I had to sit still and, you know, didn't really enjoy it. I mean, you, you want to, you want to, to come home thinking about how much fun they had just being out there. And, and I think, you know, hopefully my, my goal is that the the rest of it will just kind of fall in line over time.
1: Well, like, like you said, you've got them out in the woods, you've got them in the activity. That's what matters the most, right? It's not, it's not necessarily like making them, making sure they're killing things to keep them involved. As long as they're enjoying getting their boots muddy and, and and being in the outdoors that's absolutely a step in the right direction you know that's right um lock what about you man
2: well i got a similar situation with mine um, Mine are 11 and 9 now and my my older son likes to hunt he likes everything outdoors he he's he's killed a turkey he shot at a couple others that he's missed he killed his first this year He's um, killed a couple of does in years past and he likes to hunt. Um, he doesn't as much, quite as much as I did because he does have, you know, he just finished playing basketball, which basically is every weekend in January. And um, football is in August, um, October and, and all that. But still, he likes to go. My younger one is kind of the same way as Rick was just saying. He, he, he loves to fish, he'll go fishing anytime, anywhere, anyhow. And he's been duck hunting and dove hunting, and he's enjoyed that, and he wants to go back, the interaction part of it, you know. But he's been on some really exciting deer hunts and turkey hunts, and I've, and he just doesn't like to sit there. Yeah. So I try to, but I, it's it, I honestly to listen to, to what Rick just says is very much the same. Um, he he, you know, I try to take him, let him shoot his. Pellet gun and ride on the four wheeler when I'm out doing food plots and trimming stuff because he likes to be outdoors. He just doesn't like to sit still. So I try to do much of the same thing that he just talked about with mine. Is I try to take my older one hunting as much as I can because he loves to do it and he's you know well, I mean he's now got to, I, t- I set him in a stand. Uh, it was January the 11th um, after a basketball game. We headed up to our family camp in Mississippi and on the way up there he said, "Dad, I want to I want to hunt by myself." You know, and it's not our our family place is small, so I'm never going to be too far away from him, you know. And um, we have a box stand right behind the camp. And, uh, you know, he's killed three deer. He shoots really well. And I said, OK, we're safe. We can do this. You know, he can go make a hunt. So I sit him in a box and I we even went as far as to say, look, no does, no spikes. I'm not going to make you shoot a big buck. You know, it has to be a certain size, but it has to be a four corn buck. You know, he has to have a rack of horns. You can't shoot a spike. And you can't shoot a duck. Five o'clock, first hunt ever, he shoots a buck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, now, we didn't find it. I think he shot it in the leg. We trailed it a long ways, blood, and, and all that. But nevertheless, he's progressing. So moral of the story is I'm exposing him as much as I can. He's, he's, he's done turkey calling competitions in the youth jake thing. We're going to try to let him call up his first turkey. He shot it three times. He's turkeys now. He's killed one. He's been on a bunch of close encounters. He knows the game, so I'm cultivating with him, and, and like in, next year we're going to start letting him bow hunt. I mean, he shoots a bow, but I, you know, not comfortable letting him shoot at an animal. I'm hoping by next year I've got some ideas to maybe let him try to kill a doe with his bow or or a buck if one comes in there. But you know, specifically just trying to get him in that situation. But with the younger one, it's I'm I'm taking a hundred steps back and i'm just trying to involve him as much as i can so it will naturally cultivate his he likes the outdoors he's a boy he's a boy's boy he likes the muddy boots he likes the four-wheeler he likes to shoot guns he just doesn't like to sit still, you know yeah and um so to, to rick's point i'm just you got to find a way to customize it to them so that they don't just want to go kill something they love the outdoors That's that's what it is and that's kind of going back to what we said earlier i think that's part of my comments about the hunting camp and the changes and the and all that it's, it's really not so much about the politics of camps and the price of leased land and ownership it's not really that it's just the way our culture is developing a love for hunting not a love for going and killing something a love for hunting and the outdoors so that you're gonna go if it means you know I have to go hunt public land because that's all I have or I have to save up a little extra money because I, I, I could be able to, to, to pay to hunt a place because I'm not gonna not go hunting because I love the outdoors that's that's kind of what it is to me. And, um, as much as, you know, we has come up so many times, I'm the outdoor media guy, you know, I I get paid to produce outdoor, um, video and media. I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, there's been a false narrative created, I think with outdoor television, um, you know, it's, there's been a false narrative created that doesn't produce that lasting bond that, that Rick and I are talking about that we try to do with our children. It yeah. doesn't create that. It's this trophy gripping grin mentality, and that's hard to come by. That's not easy to come by. You've either got to well, buy it or you got to work really hard for it. You know? Sure. That's and right. And, people- I, and I
0: think the, and I guess to kind of touch on your point a little bit, the the other thing it's created it's for a lot of people it's created a, some unrealistic expectations that they get. Uh, I mean people get discouraged because they watch they watch all this stuff and yeah. they don't maybe if there's it's, in particular if if you're an adult trying to become a hunter or somebody that you're trying to learn about it and you're watching all this stuff take place and uh, you know you, you can't watch what you can't watch them hunt in Iowa and go to the morgans spillway and expect the same results.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're exactly yeah. right. Yeah.
0: And you you have you have to hunt what you have. And not you know not that you can't maximize the potential of the place that you hunt, but um there's in a lot of ways trying to fulfill unrealistic expectations can ultimately discourage people to where they just kind of set it to the side and move on, you know, go back to the golf course or whatever, wherever they came from. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just a, just another piece of the puzzle, I guess.
2: Well, I guess, I guess for that, you know, for us and and Kyler, for you with your, you know, your experience with public land, and I guess Rick and I can both say our experience growing up, working hard at the hunting camp, we've learned that it's not that way, mm-hmm. you know, but but to your point, to a new person, especially to a kid who watches YouTube or the outdoor channel, you, they, they watch this and they get interested in the outdoors and they convince somebody, their uncle or dad or someone, and they drag them out to a national forest and they hunt a couple of times and it's kind of hard work and nothing really happens and they just... It's, it doesn't live up to the expectations because they they are just trying to kill something. They're not trying to, you know, they're not, they don't have that passion that, that I think we have to learn to instill in our children. And they end up going back to travel ball or whatever, whatever is more exciting to them.
1: Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Well, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of pressures, uh, kind of being put on hunters these days. Um, uh, un, unreasonable expectations is one. Um, almost like a decline in interest or even um, a decline in, uh, you could almost say confidence in your ability. I, I remember about eight or nine years ago when I just started bow hunting. I started bow hunting in Sherburne, and I would go in by boat and I would, I remember being in an area and just climbing a tree because my climber would fit on it. and that was the reason why I picked it. And being up in the tree for like 45 minutes thinking to myself, this is stupid. Like what am I doing? <laughs> this can't be what all my friends do, you know, um, and, and 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 I kind of gave up on it for a little bit and got back into it and then you know started seeing deer and killing deer and then slowly piece it together. and that's when things click. and so I think with, you know, I didn't get into, into hunting at all until I was almost in my 20s um, in college. I, I did, did, didn't have an opportunity to hunt when I was younger. And, um, and so I'm, you know, a lot of the passion behind Louisiana Bowhunter as a project for me is the fact that I'm still very much in a, in a you know, growth learning stage with this whole process. Um, this isn't, you know, that I've been doing it my whole life like you'll have and your kids will by the time they're our age. Um, I think there's a lot of people that back to like the, what I said earlier about bringing a friend hunting, there's a lot of people that aren't highly motivated that I, and I've heard them say this, well, my dad didn't hunt. So I don't, well, that doesn't mean anything. You just cause your dad did or didn't take your hand and tell you to take you to do something doesn't mean you can't get into it now. Um, if you're uninterested in it, that's fine. I I understand that, but don't cop out and say, well, you know, my dad didn't do it. Therefore I'll never be a hunter. This isn't, you didn't miss the train, you know, this train. Not genetic. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. This isn't, (laughs) this isn't like height, you know, or some, there's some gene that you, like a deficiency that you have. It's, you can (laughs) get on this train anytime you want. And so, um, you know, as we get older and we start appreciating people for different reasons, their likes and dislikes and, and, um, and their, their characteristics about um, just kind of their viewpoint on the world or how, how passionate they are about things. If you know somebody that you feel would greatly appreciate the entire strategic process of bow hunting, which is like, you know, playing chess with an animal. Um, then introduce them into it, give them one of your old bows, let them shoot with you on the weekend and then watch that fire build. Um, and, and, you know, that's between our kids and our existing adults, that is who is going to, I don't want to say like sound like fatalistic, but save the hunting industry. If you will, that's, who's going to keep it, keep it lifted up, um, um, so that's, you know, that's kind of my, my
2: point on that. And,
0: I'm, and look, kind of go, go ahead. Or go ahead.
2: No, I was just well, going to ask you, I was actually going to ask you more about your work in, in the government. You know, I, I don't know what all, but what all you've done directly or indirectly, but just from a, from a legislation viewpoint, I mean, what is the, what have you seen the state do, do, doing, will do and, and whatnot as it pertains to the, growth and or just maintaining our public access and hunting and and all that within the state?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always a a tough balance. Um, You know, my my goal would always be to, to make sure we try and maintain as many public opportunities as we possibly can, but not just maintain the, you know, the available land, but uh, in an accessible way, you know, I mean, I've watched, uh, uh, I, I turkey hunted, uh, in particular, what, what used to be three rivers and red river. It's now Richard, named something else. Richard K. Uh, Yancey. Richard Yancey. And I mean, I, I started going there when I was about, I don't know, 17 years old and, you know, hunted it for 20 years. And, while yes the same amount of land is available you watch you know you watch habitat that was really good maybe uh change and is no longer as uh as gamey as it once was and uh, and so those those are always the things when i get my opportunities to to visit with wildlife and fisheries and things like that is you know i, I try and visit with them about how can we do more to you know, in terms of uh, habitat management, and, and also, you know, just access points in terms of, you know, places that were were decent roadways that just get beat up over time, and you uh, you know, at some point they were maintained, and you know, of course, earlier in my life I wouldn't have understood it at all, but but now kind of seeing the government side of things, there's always such a such a balance. You know, you you you've got to keep it affordable, and you want to so that people financially can access it. And then at the same time, uh, a lot of oftentimes it doesn't leave you enough money to properly maintain it. Uh, And so it's it unfortunately a lot of times it's it's a it's a struggle to to keep places uh, functioning as as maybe they started out if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and if if we can, as a side note, keep put this in your back pocket. If we uh-huh. could just get Tunica Hills to stay open to the same season dates as the rest of Area 6, that <laughs> would be fantastic.
0: I have I'll have to look into that.
1: I have I mean, I can forward you a 2-year email chain between me and Jonathan Bordelon about making that amendment to where area six goes to February 15th and you can hunt tunica Hills until February 15th, which is in area six. Um, yeah, absolutely. It,
0: well, what, what is their reason behind it? Not being that way.
1: Well, so it's, it's interesting. Um, it's changed a little bit. The original conversation I had with Jonathan, Jonathan Bordelon was two years ago at the sportsman show when I brought it up to him. And it was, a uh, it was almost like an, Oh shit. You're right, we just forgot. Um mm-hmm. like like well because well because and and I you know I don't want to sound too critical of him. Uh Tunica Hills was not always in Area 6. It was in Area 4 for a while. And when they moved it or I think they extended Area 6 into Tunica Hills, um they just ch- didn't change the Tunica Hills date. Now, if it was an NWR, I could understand it. But it's not; right. it's a WMA, so it's not some national mandate to keep it as like certain dates. It was strictly an oversight. Well, last year I tried to get him to change it. It was past the dude, you know, past the um, application date for changes for the the regulations booklet, um, and so that was the reasoning. And then this year, it was. I mean, not to sound too critical, but it was a lot of jargon about. Too much brows, not enough deer. Or sorry, not enough brows, not enough deer. We're going to leave it alone. And it was, it it was, I mean, I, like I said, I can forward you the email. It was um, very... Um, and what
0: a terrible excuse, because how was many deer are really going to get killed in that last 15 days?
1: I, exactly. And so, like I said, I'm not asking for a special season. I'm asking for it to match what the season already is. Um, and... Uh, like, like I said, I'll get your email address before we get off here, and I'll forward it to you. You can read it um, in detail. It's it's too long to read on the podcast, but it, it was essentially there's not enough food to support the herd. Um, we need to give them a break, and um, I just – I just I mean, if, that's the, if that's the case, then why not make all of St. Francisville shut down on well, the 31st? Well, all the people
2: that are feeding them corn all around Tonka Hills, that means they're congregating them and killing them. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> how about this? I
1: mean, if, by, if there's by not by that enough food that would be, you for the herd,
0: how about you leave it open so we can kill
2: a few more?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let's thin it out. So I um, got another
2: question. Uh-huh. I'm not playing devil's advocate, but I'm going a different direction. And I don't exactly know how to ask it, but you mentioned habitat change. And if you've, if you've listened to me on the turkey hunting podcast that I do in the spring, this is a big topic for me. So I'm curious. Uh-huh. Habitat change is a big thing, both on public yeah. and private. And I'm, okay. I'm curious to know from a state legislation level, and I don't know if this comes down to um, Department of Agriculture or what, but I mean, is there anything – and I'm not trying to get like big government here, but is there anything yeah. happening, can happen that helps to regulate the absolute destruction of – of um, of habitat by timber companies and, and I know it's private property and I know this is a free country but you know uh, I live in an area where the turkey population has basically been decimated by the timber industry and yeah. uh, there's people who argue with me on that but you cannot take a thousand acres of properly managed and burned pines over over decades or large standing hardwoods and wipe them out like an atomic bomb. Spray them with a cut. Spray them down with helicopters and poison, and then create a briar thicket that a rabbit can hardly live in. And say that that's not killing the wild turkey because it has destroyed the wild turkeys in East Louisiana Parish. So yeah. I, I'm just, you know, and and we're talking about deer and bow hunting, but just in general, I mean, what is what does that look like on the on the government level? Because it feels yeah, like well, a problem to me.
0: You know the on the I guess on the what I've seen with, with WMAs in in particular is at some point in time, and and maybe it was, uh, you know, if you talk to them, they'll try and say that there is a, you know, that they've always tried to maintain, you know, like a cycle of when they cut timber and all that. And of course I'm kind of boots on the ground probably a lot more in some of these places than maybe the average legislator. So I kind of am able to push back a little bit and say, well, I don't know because I mean, I, you know, I know what, what a place looked like 20 years ago and there hasn't been any thinning or, you know, there's nothing. You you got trees hollowing out and dying instead of being harvested. It seems like we could, you know, maybe maybe do some select cutting and use use those finances to to better better the land that it's coming from. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do it, and uh, never really made a whole lot of progress with that. But um, it just it seems like. And I, look, I know the uh, in particular the last few years the timber industry has, has struggled in terms of you know, pricing and that sort of thing. So I I know that uh, they try and wait for the right times to make the most financial sense. But I I think there's opportunity there to make make the land better and also try and make some money for the, you know, to maintain just simple things on some of the WMAs. But to your point, to your earlier point, you don't want to do it in a way that decimates an area. I mean, when I think back to uh, kind of some of my earlier days of, of hunting, like uh, up at red river or three rivers, you know, they would, they would come through and do some very smart cuts and, and it would be great for, for anything we hunted, hunted up there. And, uh, and I, I just, I hadn't seen any of that take place in a very long time and I probably need to do a little bit better job of kind of digging in to try and figure out why that you know why that stopped what what's changed what are we doing to, what do we need to do to get it back on track those sorts of things
2: yeah it's hard to it's hard to figure out because you know I'm sure that there's not a lot that you can say or do about what's happening in, in the private sector. I mean, what are you going to do? Somebody owns the land; they have the right, yeah, to uh, to do what they want there. So, but if it's you know from a big picture, if you're looking at you know this resource for the whole state, whether it's a WMA or whatever, everybody who is buying hunting license and purchasing equipment and outdoor gear everybody that's involving themselves in the outdoor industry is is paying taxes and they're you know that's, that's a resource to the state whether it's happening on yeah. state owned land or not if 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 the private sector is not doing a good job and then the the wma's also aren't doing a good job then that to me not i guess it, it like i said I, I, initially it's a hard question for me to ask cuz i don't know exactly how to ask it cuz i'm certainly not a proponent of of legislation infringing on the rights of private landowners or anything like that. But it's just from a big picture perspective, we're, if nobody's doing it, then we're all going to suffer, you know?
0: No, that's um, right. Well, and I, you know, if you really want to be disappointed, of course it's exciting when you're there, but if you go into some, if you go into the same region of an area That's been decimated, but maybe the neighboring property where they have done the opposite of that and they've they've managed their timber. They've done all the things they need to do, but they've done it in a way that also, uh, you know, enhances the wildlife. So they've kind of got the best of both worlds going and you see thriving populations of deer, turkeys, whatever you can imagine. And then you go across the property line and it's just the complete opposite. It's uh, I mean, there's no doubt. But but how like you said, how do you go about? uh, Yeah, I I don't You, It almost has to be from from, you know, try and educate people and just get just go convince them that, hey, you know, there's value to this, too
2: yeah sure well i think what to what you're saying if you want to if you want to experience that from my perspective you can come to my neck of the woods and you can see it where where i think you find it is the areas where there's large chunks of timber company owned land because inevitably you're going to have a family that's got i have this right here where i live you know you got lots of blocks of timber company land and you know they Mm -hmm. just wipe it out you know i mean they're very loosely regulated on what they can and can't. I mean, they're only supposed to cut so close to ditches and creeks and they push that boundary as far as they can, you know, and and now they're using these chemicals instead of prescribed burning and all that. And then the family across the street over here that's had property for a long time, like you said, that diversity between that family over there that's taking care of their property and how their wildlife is thriving and their hunting is good and populations of everything are good, and then right across the road is this 500 acres that's owned by such and such timber company that comes in there and just, you know, decimates the habitat every 20 years. It's it's so obvious. And then when you get in large parishes where there's large, large swatches of this, where there's just basically no habitat left, it's not too bad for the deer, because the deer obviously can live in a briar thicket pretty well, but uh, for a lot of the other animals, it's tough. I mean, it's something that concerns me a lot, because I, I see it kind of i see this conversation going to a lot of the other conversations we've had but it's 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 harder to get our kids involved when there's less access when there's less desirable places and you know that's one of the things for me as a kid is we had the homochitta and i grew up in mississippi so we had the homochitta national forest and the sandy creek and the st catherine's wildlife areas and then we had a large um, lease ourselves that was very well done it was um, rotated and you know we had lots of land and big woods and cut over to have a little bit of diversity and we were able to really explore and learn you know it's hard to do that in in a lot of places these days that's just a you know a pine ticket. sure um you know so i, I don't know that's one of the things that i i i would like to give a shout out in this conversation really the nwtf of, of all the conservation organizations that people are employed to support the end is one that's actually spent their own money to put biologists into into places in the state and actually spent money to have them work with the state and help. And you can see the difference on those WMAs. We've talked to Betsy, you know, a former NWTF district biologist that was working in the state of Louisiana for several years. And you yeah. can see the difference in the properties where they were boots on the ground working because they were they were, you know, helping to educate and actually helping to work and fund some of this and it, it made a difference. Absolutely. So, no doubt
1: well um let's uh let's get it wrapped up here guys um i i do want to ask you before we before we jump off uh tell us about your equipment rick what are you hunting with what bow do you have
0: well, so I, i've been shooting the same bow for i guess this is my fifth year with it i i shoot a matthews uh monster chill r mm-hmm. i believe it is yeah and uh i I started shooting it about five years ago and I ultimately what I wanted to do, I, I had, I had a couple of, uh, I lost a couple of deer one year in particular and I just wasn't getting clean pass throughs. And, and so I really, I kind of had it in my mind what I wanted to set up and it was just an, an, overall, uh, overall heavier setup. And so um, I went to a, wanted to go to a bow that was faster. So not, not for speed, but so I could beef up my, and shoot a heavier arrow. So I, yeah, I shoot, a, 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 I shoot full metal jackets and, um, and I, I've been doing that for a while now. And I, I've, I've had, <laughs> I've had great success with it. I, I knock on wood. I can honestly say, and I don't, five years I've, uh, I have yet to not have a complete pass through since I've kind of moved over to that setup. Nice, very so, nice. Well, broadheads and you then seen? I, I shoot uh, I shoot Rage broadheads, which that was kind of uh, you know, I've, I it was a trial and error type thing. I, I tried a number of different things. I, I eventually landed on the, the Rage uh, hypodermic. And I've been shooting those for, uh, I guess four years now.
1: Nice. Nice. And, uh, are you hunting, um, you hunting pre-hung sets on your, on your property or you do any, any type of mobile hunting?
0: Uh, not nearly as much as I used to. Most everything's pre-hung. When I, back in the days when I had more time, uh, you know, I was constantly moving sets around and, you know, probably several times a week. Now nowadays, it's uh, most everything's kind of pre-hung, and um, you know, you just just kind of if 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 I really see something happening that I need to adjust to, I'll I'll try and make the time to uh, to make the adjustment. But I'm not nearly as mobile as I used to be.
1: I hear you. Well, um, Lock, you got any other questions, man? Before we jump off I- here.
2: I don't, man. I really appreciate your time coming yeah. on. Rick. It's oh, I enjoyed it's been fun it, fun to talk to you.
1: Absolutely. Well, um, look, we appreciate your support. Um, you know, to be honest, I, uh, you know, the way that uh, that you kind of came about was, I think, <clears throat> what was it? Scott Rowe had tagged you in something. Maybe mm-hmm. it was something about a bridge. And yeah, you know, yeah. Scott's good at that. And, oh, yeah. um, and I was like, who's he tagging? And I looked at it and you were wearing a Louisiana bow hunter hat. And I was like, well, all right. And, um, the, the bottom land camo hat. And I, I, I texted lock cause I think yep. y'all are mutual friends. And I was like, I was like, do you know, do you know Rick Ward? And he said, yeah, I'll reach out to him. And here we are. So, um, well, man,
0: I appreciate it. And, uh, I really enjoyed the visit and hopefully we can uh, visit again soon.
1: Absolutely. Well look if you hope you have a good you, turkey season. Yeah, if you make it out um the next couple of days and know you still got a couple of days left, uh, then good luck to you. All
0: right. Yeah, same same well look, I'll I will definitely look into the whole uh tunica thing as well.
1: Yeah. I'll, cool. I'll, uh, look, I'll send you a text here in just a second. I'll get your email and I'll forward it on to you. You can read, okay. read it from Jonathan. I don't, I don't try to get in, anybody in trouble. I just think it was a, from the first three conversations we had to this answer, it was a total one eighty. you know, like it was, it was pretty much like a done deal. We'll get it in the book. It's no problem to actually, we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, yeah, no,
0: really... I I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can find out on that and maybe we can we can push a little bit that'd be great happens
1: well so, i appreciate you i know a lot of people will be happy about that so
0: absolutely well uh well good deal and lock man good luck with turkey season be here before we know it yes sir i'm ready
1: all right y'all have I'm a ready. good night you
0: too. all right talk to y'all soon see ya